Grant Smith, I hear there's a big hearing this week. Actually, a couple different hearings, but the one I guess we'll open up with is the uh, Cambridge Ordinance hearing for social equity. Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me, Mike. I definitely want to get into that, but uh, with your permission, maybe like to take uh, 10 or 15 seconds just to say a word about uh, a friend that I sadly lost this week. And uh, I'm disabled, uh, which will come up more as we talk, but uh, part of being disabled is that I don't get out of the house a lot and I spend a lot of my time on the internet. And a friend of mine who I watch movies with every day over the internet, we'd sync the movie and talk about it for, for years, every day, years in a row, uh, sadly passed away this week. And uh, his name was Robin and he lived in Sweden. And I just wanted to take a moment to honor uh, what his friendship meant to me and how he kept me going in some really dark times through my disability. And I hope wherever you are, Robin, that you're resting comfortably. And it was really an honor to know you. And I love and miss you very much. Oh, wow, Grant. I'm glad you talked about that. I didn't want to ask because I, you know, recorded line show i don't want to put you on the spot but i'm glad you shared that and and i'm sorry sorry about your loss to your friend thank you mike i really appreciate the opportunity just to talk a little bit about him and, and say that there he had such a big impact on on me as a person and on the world at large and he fought really hard in the face of some very difficult demons and i'm very proud of not only the, the fight that he showed, but what it inspired in me and how much strength it gave me to, to fight through some illnesses that I've been dealing with. I, I want to add some that too, because I was, uh, I don't know, I, it's, when you when you said like, you know, I think Robin had his purpose here because he helped you. Like when you said your darkest time, I, I this morning, sometimes when I have like days where I'm just not feeling as well, I, I seek out certain music and uh, today it was Tracy Chapman. I just love her. I just listen to her, a lot of her music. And uh, I was just listening to that song, uh, Fast Car. I've listened to her a million times. I like it. Uh, I never liked it when I first came out, though, you know. But if you listen to the lyrics and what it's about, uh, it just today I, I just had like a new revolution, revelation about the song. Like that, like that's what I want to have as a purpose is to be the person with a fast car. Like even even that song, it was like, I had a friend like that when I was down and out um, and he had the car, you know, he had the dreams, he had the inspiration, he had the things that were keeping me going when I didn't think I could keep going. And now I feel like in a really good place and uh, I want to do that for other people. And I feel like that song isn't even about doing something. It's just about trying to take the friend's mind off of it and just giving them hope for the future. I mean, my friend and I, we had talked about moving next to each other, buying properties and living together. That didn't happen, unfortunately, but it kept me going when I really needed that. And uh, Robin did that for you. So, and I know a lot of people out there listening and in life are lonely. Loneliness is like the new thing. Um, I, I just want to be that fast car if you need me. If anyone is feeling lonely or down ever, you can always reach out to me. I'll definitely take your call. Reminds me, I have to call a friend back today. <laughs> so, 
So, Grant, are you still there? Yeah, thank you. That was really powerful, Mike. I was really enjoying listening to your what you were sharing, and I I am living proof of what the fact that what you're saying is true because this week when I was really struggling and 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 having a difficult time with uh, Robin's passing. I, I called you about something else and we ended up talking for about an hour and a half and it really meant a lot to me, Mike. And, you know, perhaps something that's really come into focus for me this week is that when we do have friends in our lives and they mean a lot to us, it's good to let them know. And so I was really grateful that that we were able to talk this week and it really helped me. And I wanted to let you know that. Now I'm going to let you know, I really do appreciate you as well. I feel like uh, I'm blessed to have met you. You know, you're like one of those people, like my friend, that I still grieve losing him. You know, it's been over five years, and it's just uh, I'm I'm glad I know you, and uh, I'm glad that we work together. So <laughs> let's talk yeah. about Cambridge. I love you, man. All right, I'm like we're crying today, but I think people get it. And this is what a lot of uh, people are dealing with. Like we, this is like common humanity now, um, especially with the way things are going. Um, but we yes. want to talk about Cambridge. Uh, we, we want do. to talk about cannabis. So what is going on in Cambridge this week? Um, yes. So thank you for letting me get that in. And on the Cambridge, uh, the humanity part I, is really important. And on the Cambridge front, uh, so what's been happening over the past month or so, more than a month actually, but it's really heated up over the past month is, so in Cambridge, uh, they're talking about how they want to go about licensing uh, recreational uh, cannabis shops. Uh, as you know, Mike, uh, medical dispensaries have been open um, in Cambridge in particular, but throughout the state for going on however many years, five or six at this point. However, recreational shops are licensed on a town-by-town level. And so the rollout of those shops, even though they've been legal uh, since, uh, not since the vote in 2016, but since the summer of 2017, when they were officially allowed to start beginning the process of opening them, it's been a very slow rollout. I think there's maybe 20 total dispensaries. But I think three it's of them, 21 now. Yeah, I think it's now 21. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's in the 20s, low 20s. I, I think 20, the 21st just opened in when like Nantucket this weekend or something like that. So, yes. Yeah, I had a... I had a feeling it was low. I had no doubt you'd know the exact number. Well, no, I just uh, saw the headline. It's funny, you know, because yeah. uh, every time one opens, they, they announce how many, like the 21st, the 22nd, you know. So, yeah, something like that. It's either 21 or 22 now. And if you think about that, I hate to go off on a tangent, but if you think about the population of Massachusetts, right, which is something like 7 million people, there's 22 There's 22 dispensaries, and obviously not all of the population uses cannabis, but it really just goes to show that the the rollout has been slow. And part of that reason, there are a lot of factors leading into the delay of that rollout. Uh, As we know, uh, there was a bill put forth by one senator in December of 2016 that delayed the whole process by six months. Um, There's been rulings from the attorney general and there's also been a lot of things on the municipal level. So in each municipality, however many there are, 354 in the state of Massachusetts, there's what's called a zoning process. And so on top of that zoning process for businesses that want to open, the state's Cannabis Control Commission gives a lot of authority to municipalities 
to basically dictate the terms of the cannabis businesses that will be operating in their community, whether it's medical or recreational. So in Cambridge right now, they're going through this process of trying to establish ordinances, uh, zoning, permitting, and otherwise for cannabis businesses, retail, uh, recreational marijuana businesses. And uh, a few months ago, there was a proposal put forth during that process wherein uh, there would be a two-year period where only uh, what are called social equity or economic empowerment applicants would have been able to apply for recreational retail permits in Cambridge. Now, the social equity and economic empowerment applicant, uh, the social equity and economic empowerment programs are actually run at the state level. And so there are two different programs that are designed to basically give a leg up to communities that were disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. And so participants in these programs can qualify through a number of different um, criteria. Uh, uh, one uh, criteria is uh, living in an area of uh, disparate impact uh, in terms of the war on drugs. So those are zip codes throughout the state that the C Cannabis Commission has identified as qualifying. And then there are other ways to qualify for the different, uh, the two different programs, uh, another of which is to have a, a conviction for uh, certain drug offenses that will actually qualify one for one of the programs. But so the, the programs are administered by the state, but each town uh, in Cambridge in particular has taken a different approach to how that group of applicants is handled in their permitting process. So Cambridge had a really progressive and unique idea, which has not been seen anywhere else in the Commonwealth as of yet, which was that two-year period, the exclusivity period I was talking to you about. However, and in theory, obviously, a lot of people agree with this. Giving economic empowerment and social equity applicants a leg up in the permitting process is the whole reason why those programs exist. So for municipalities to embrace that spirit, that ethos as well, is actually a positive sign. At least that's how I thought about it and some other groups who had been working on this two-year exclusivity period. So most people, and when, I think... Wait, would, I just want to interrupt yeah. you there because you're doing Go really ahead. good. But uh, when you say exclu uh, exclusive period, two years, what that means is that these social equity and equ economic empowerment, they get to open first before the existing RMDs that are already medical and have a lot of revenue, have existing sites, have business plans and have relationships and donations, and they're the ones who would get licensed first otherwise because they're just basically already set up to go. So they're first in the queue, and basically it would block them for two years. So it would give basically an equal playing field to everybody in a way, really. Am I correct on that? Yeah, so you, you exactly predicted what I was going to, to say, which Total. is that – Oh, no, yeah, you got it exactly right, which is that, so the only people, it seems, that ended up opposing this proposed two-year priority period for the economic empowerment and social equity applicants was a group of dispensaries. So just to expand a little bit on what you were saying, if you're a medical dispensary in the Commonwealth, and for context, there are three medical dispensaries operating in Cambridge. Uh, one is Sierra Naturals, which is owned by 
Cannabis Acquisitions Corporation out of Canada. I believe they were just sold. Uh, the other is Revolutionary Clinics, if I'm correct. And the third is, is it uh, Healthy Farms? Am I wrong about that, Mike? You might know better than I. I'm not sure Healthy Farms is still doing Georgetown. I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know. They they did have a location in Georgetown. It shut down because they also got bought out by a bigger company. Um, and I'm not sure if they're going to be opening it again. I don't know the, the details on that, actually. They may, think, they but, may still be closed. So, I who think, knows? Well, uh, I, I guess the point remains the same, though, which is that yeah. uh, the, the priority period, as proposed initially, would have excluded these medical dispensaries. Now, these medical dispensaries, as you were saying, just one of them, according to the Boston Globe, uh, based on some reporting I had read from Dan Adams, across all their locations in Massachusetts, is projected to make $90 million in revenue this coming fiscal year alone. And these companies were saying that they, uh, and part of why this Cambridge uh, ordinance hearing that's coming up on the 14th uh, at 5.30 p.m. is so interesting is because there has been this protracted one-month-long fight because the dispensaries objected to that two-year priority period for the economic empowerment and social equity applicants and said that their bottom line they didn't say this openly, but the argument made was that if that two-year priority period was allowed to go forth, then the dispensaries would be harmed. And the way they, uh, so the first ordinance hearing was last month, and the way they went about presenting their uh, objection to the two-year priority period was really, really, it raised a lot of eyebrows because they hired not only Consensus Strategies, which is a Waltham, I believe, based uh, kind of consulting firm that the Wynn Casino had also hired uh, to lobby for their uh, uh, deals related to the Everett Casino. So the, the dispensary hired that firm, and then they also uh, uh, had some of their own employees uh, show up as well, and they were, they were testifying to the ordinance committee that if this two-year priority period went through, that they would be harmed and therefore the priority period should be removed entirely and replaced with a, the first offer was a $5 million contribution to an equity fund, and the second offer was a $3 million contribution to an equity fund. To they, went, they, went, they went down. That's funny. They, they went yeah. down on their offer. That's crazy. And so you know, that's too, I, I want to bring up the numbers, too, because you said, uh, you know, let's say it's 20 21, 22 dispensaries open right now, recreational in Massachusetts, uh, six and a half billion people in Massachusetts. But that's not even all of, of all of the market for these dispensaries because what we're seeing is that especially the early recreational dispensaries here in Massachusetts, they're serving out-of-state patients. They're serving people in New Hampshire where there's no recreational. They're serving people from New Jersey, New York, Delaware, Pennsylvania, States that don't have legalization, and they're basically cannabis tourists. And uh, we've documented it. We've, we've, you know, sent people out to go to some of the local dispensaries, and we're seeing the out-of-state plate. So this is uh, a, even a bigger market than just Massachusetts. This is like, you know, if it's uh, a couple hours, three hours away, Connecticut is another state. Like, you know, the states that don't have recreational this is where people are going, that they're driving up to Massachusetts to make purchases. 
Oh, yeah. And um, the, this is exactly why these dispensaries don't want that priority period to be given just to economic empowerment and social equity applicants because the, these, uh, especially the dispensary that was just purchased by the Canadian-owned firm, they have an obligation to their stockholders who are going to be demanding that they get into the recreational market as soon as they can. But if you think about that, what that's basically saying is the argument, and this, this is what, why they can't actually get up and make this argument in front of the ordinance committee, the argument they have to make is that their profits are equally as important as giving a leg up to the entire class of applicants who are in the social equity or economic empowerment program, which is just, in my opinion, on its face, absurd. It is. It definitely is. So, so this hearing on Tuesday, it's Tuesday night, is that correct? Uh, it's Wednesday night, the Wednesday. 14th, at 5.30 at Cambridge City Hall. Okay. Oh, man, I hope I can make it. <laughs> Wednesdays, I never know until Wednesday afternoon. I have some customers that call me last minute. But Wednesday night, 5.30, Cambridge City Hall. And this is an ordinance hearing, and it's basically to decide what they do. Um, what are you going to ask them? To well, well, to bring uh, – I, I know we kind of got into the weeds a little bit, but just to give the 30,000-foot elevation picture of where we're at. So there was the initial – a proposal by Councillor uh, Zonderman, who I believe you know, and Councillor Siddiqui. And their proposal, as I said, would have been the two-year moratorium, the two-year priority period for economic empowerment and social equity applicants only. Then, after the dispensaries felt that that wasn't appropriate, there was a what was called a compromise proposal, the first compromise proposal put forth by Councillor Denise Simmons. Uh, that was the subject of a hearing last month. Now, that compromise would have given, uh, removed the priority period, and as I said, put about four, maybe $5 million in a fund over four years that would have gone to an independently uh, overseen uh, social equity fund that only social equity and economic empowerment applicants could get money from. Now, the reason people objected to that initial compromise was because they said, okay, well, these companies are making upwards of $100 million across their locations in one year, and they want to make a total payment of 4 or $5 million for access to the market on an equal playing field with the social equity and economic empowerment applicants, it just didn't seem to make a lot of sense. However, the Ordinance Committee didn't decide to make a final decision. They heard all the comments. They saw the people in support. Uh, the uh, dispensaries did a, a very corporate job, in my opinion, of bringing out supporters, and uh, the Boston Globe actually, in my opinion, reflected that reality in an excellent story that was titled, Follow the Money uh, in Fight Over Cambridge Medical Dispensaries, or something along those lines. Yeah, Follow the Money in Fight Over Cambridge Pot Policy was the title of the piece that ran, and the reality is that the Ordinance Committee, after I think seeing some of those stage theatrics and hearing some of the good faith arguments, I should say I was not the only one up there arguing for this priority period. There, was oh, there were a lot of good speeches, and we, we covered it as well. We uh, did a podcast on it. People can hear some of those speeches. Chauncey, well, hopefully we're going to have on the live show next Sunday with yourself. Um, okay. So there are a lot of great proponents as well at that hearing. Yeah. Yeah, Joseph Gilmore. Paid t-shirts too. That you know, they they will be a lot of paid people um, wearing white t-shirts that said patients. 
which is kind of uh, steezy. Some of those people are patients as well, but just really a weird situation with the dispensaries, uh, the way that they lobbied at that event, I thought. And the Boston well, Globe yeah. thought so, too. And maybe just on that point, I know I wanted to catch us up to speed to this hearing, but as to the last hearing, what was really interesting about it was the the patients who were speaking were making the argument that these companies, if they could only make the $90 million across their locations in revenue from medical and couldn't expand to recreational, that they'd for some reason have to charge their patients more. Which didn't make a lot of sense because if you're pulling in $90 million in revenue, projected $90 million in revenue in one year across your locations, how much are you, how much markup are you already making off your patients? And why do you need access to recreational to avoid charging your patients more? Yeah, we, they're already charging the patients too much for mids, and uh, they haven't done enough good enough job, and now they want to get into recreational. And, and we've started to notice it. We've seen a story that was just written by Sheriff Schoenberg uh, for Mass Lives, and we've seen other stories written about how a lot of these recreational dispensaries, once they go recreational, they kind of do leave the patients behind. So it's very interesting, the double talk. But so Tuesday night, what yeah, about yeah, so, the ordinance hearing? I know I keep kind of moving it Wednesday forward. Night. A bit. Oh, Wednesday night. Thank you again. Wednesday night, 530, Cambridge City Hall, ordinance hearing. Like, where is it at now? Because there's been several proposals that you listed. There was a two-year, and then they want to offer money now. Like, what are they going to vote on on Tuesday night, uh, Wednesday night? <laughs> right. So the first compromise uh, was sent up to the main city council a week or two ago. And uh, when it got there, the city council was presented with only 18 hours' notice with a second compromise. Right. And so, so which is not really legal. It's supposed to be twenty, at least twenty. I, I think you. I don't know. Eighteen hours definitely can't be legal in Massachusetts for a public hearing, right? Well, you are absolutely right uh, in terms of the fact that the public meeting law is very strict. I do not know. Uh, I, I should say I saw the document for the first time eighteen hours before the city council was scheduled to meet. I do not know the exact timeline on when right. the compromise was initially publicly circulated, but I do think it's worth looking into because the the second compromise that was presented to the city council actually contained less funds than the first the compromise, first. and that's, it still removed the priority period. That's just dirty. Yeah. That's just like, you know, who does that? Who offers, like, if you're going to offer a second bill, make it better than the first one. Like, don't make it worse. And the, the compromise that they did offer was that over 18 months, they would each uh, dispensary would give $1 million to the, uh, to the independently administered social equity fund. For, uh, excuse me, they would each give $500,000 and do it twice. So I believe the fund would total $3 million if there are, in fact, three dispensaries who would be playing the role in that uh, payment. So they offered a $3 million fund paid out over 18 months in exchange for no priority period. But the thing is, if that fund doesn't need to be paid out in full until 18 months, those medical dispensaries are going to have their recreational shops open day one of that 18 or however many long month period it is. 
And so they're going to get the chance to take over the market, even if they pay that $3 million, which is a drop in the bucket in reality. They're, they're not going to have to actually fund competing equity applicants and social, uh, social equity and economic empowerment applicants until the medical dispensaries have their recreational businesses long since established. So it's just a, it, it almost went backwards. And so now, because the city council at their special meeting got this proposal with so, so little notice, they kicked it back down to the ordinance committee, which will now meet on Wednesday at 5.30, to talk about the second compromise, which is really no different than the first compromise. So people need to weigh in on Wednesday night, 5.30, Cambridge City Council. What, what do you, what's your testimony? What are you going to be asking for on Wednesday? So I'm going to say the exact same thing that I said last time, which is that, uh, just to be clear, the, uh, the two-year period, the dispensaries are also arguing that it's illegal. However, the Cambridge uh, City Solicitor, City Council, the, 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 legal council to, the legal council to the City Council has said that the two-year priority period, based on her understanding, is legal. Yeah, I've looked at it, too, and it does seem legal. Um, it seems like it's with the intent of the law. It's reasonable. Um, and I think Shaleen Title weighed in on that, or someone from the CCC as well, and I think they agreed as well, if I'm correct on that. So I think well, totally well, legal. We should I mean, be, we, we should be clear with Commissioner yeah. Title's testimony because okay. – she said she had to qualify it and say she wasn't weighing in directly on the ordinance. Okay. She was saying that in general, the CCC gives towns a lot of latitude to determine how they implement their uh, registration regulations and ordinances. Correct. I don't feel like that the CCC would uh, step in against this at all. Um, you never know what what could happen in court, especially when they have high-priced attorneys, these dispensaries. But uh, I, I well, have a feeling that 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 it, that it would stand. I think that the two-year moratorium would stand because what good is it to have social and economic empowerment if the dispensaries are the ones that get to open first? I mean, it just doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It's not fair. And unfortunately. The reason I had to bring up the fact that they were suggesting it's illegal is they've also threatened to sue sure. and block. So say the two, yeah. yeah, so say the two-year moratorium goes through and uh, they sue. That would then block off access to the market for every applicant, which harms. Well, it could. It doesn't necessarily. It depends on what sure. the court decides to do. The court could definitely do that. The court could say, you know, I'm going to put up. We're going to put like a, a stop on this until we decide what we're going to do. The court could do that. I don't think it would happen, but uh, you never know. You never know. And 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 to the fact that the, the dispensaries are such good neighbors and good citizens in the city of Cambridge, they're actually threatening to sue the Cam city of Cambridge over this to stop social economic, and they still have the right to open in the two years. I mean. That's just kind of outrageous to me, and that they throw the threats out. That bothers me a lot too, as well. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I was going to say, um, Mike, don't these medical dispensaries have to re-up their community host agreements every right. what is it, five years? Yes. And if I and doesn't the city manager in Cambridge with the city council kind of oversee the host agreements? I'm pretty sure. 
I, I think I remember that. And so if I were a Cambridge City Councilor and these dispensaries, after the public comment period, after the democratic process goes through, if I were to see these dispensaries sue the city of Cambridge because they didn't like the result of the democratic process and destroy the entire two-year priority period simply because their profits were undermined, I, I personally don't know how I'd feel about signing a community host agreement with that kind of company. And I don't know how I would feel um, just in general about not doing a boycott. You know what I mean? Like this, that would be probably the moment where I think a lot of people in the community might actually take a real stand against some of these dispensaries pulling something like that, especially people in Cambridge that live in Cambridge to get sued by dispensaries that Cambridge decided to open where a lot of other cities and towns said no, you know, and, and, and one of the best areas to open a dispensary basically in Massachusetts as well, you know, between Harvard and MIT. I mean, this is the best spot, the best place you could open. And, uh, Cambridge has been good to them. And if they're actually going to sue, <laughs> I, I think that there's going to be a lot of pushback from the community. What do you, what, what do you think? Do you think that people would get upset about that if they sue? Yeah, I, I think that uh, if this, if the priority period goes through, and the only thing that stops that priority period from going into effect is that the dispensaries that exist, the medical dispensaries, try to sue, I think there would be outrage. I think that would be really bad press. I think every single story written about it would be about how these dispensaries didn't get their way and thus decided to undermine the entire two-year period for every single social equity and economic empowerment applicant. I and think I think I that... Would, yeah, yeah, I think we'd be picketing. <laughs> I think I would be, you know, and I think I would. we would get a lot of people to picket. You know, I think that would... Everyone across the state that's a social economic empowerment and anyone that supports that, I think that we come to Cambridge to stop picking and those dispensaries if that happens. So, wow. I just, you know, these are new things we're thinking about and uh, I hope the dispensaries are listening because <laughs> we're giving you free advice. <laughs> we are. There is one more element as well, I should, uh, of the second compromise. And I bring this up because I think, although it's not, I don't want to see the compromise, there's actually a very cool insight that came about from it, and I think you'll like it, Mike. Um, so a second part of this new compromise is that there would be a – so the way cannabis taxes are structured, just so people are clear, there's no tax on medical marijuana in Massachusetts. However, for recreational, there's a 20% state tax, of which 3% goes to the local municipality in which the dispensary, the recreational dispensary is operated. And then these municipalities can negotiate something called a community host agreement, which allows them to impose a 3% tax on top of that 20%. So the local community can actually get 6% of the tax revenue from every recreational shop that opens. And there's a proposal in this second compromise to uh, form a social equity fund and uh, seed it, not only using what we were talking about earlier, which is the one-off payment from the dispensary, but seed it using uh, a percentage of that local uh, 6% tax. And I think if the city council decides to go forward with the two-year moratorium, and so therefore they pass on the $3 million or whatever it was from the dispensary, 
I think the city council, excuse me, should also consider adopting a second uh, unrelated regulation which says that in perpetuity, a certain percentage of that 6% local tax from recreational dispensaries will go into an equity fund forever. And the reason I... The reason I bring it up is that there is a serious concern that some people have raised, which is that these social uh, social uh, equity and economic empowerment applicants, and I do not mean to speak for them. I'm just relaying some of the things that I've seen them testify about and heard about. These applicants, more so than anything else, face a barrier to entry to getting into the market due to the lack of viable financing. And I think you might have even seen another story uh, that actually came out of the Cincinnati area. Uh, Dan Adams, again, who I have so much respect for, highlighted it in his excellent This Week in Weed newsletter. And some of these economic empowerment or social equity applicants get approached by these large companies. And they say, exactly, we want you to act as a straw person for us, basically. We'll run the company. We'll take most of the money, but you use your status status to give us expedited priority. And that type of predatory financing is rampant in the Wild West that is the cannabis industry. And so there needs to be a viable fund. And so if, they're, if Cambridge is going to go forward with this uh, two-year priority period and they're not going to get that $3 million for the fund, I think that one of the best things they could do is look at a viable way to keep that fund going, even if it is not through payments from the dispensaries themselves, the medical dispensaries. Yes, but from the tax. They need to create the funds either way. And they they have the power to do that. So that's what you'll be asking them to do. And I think that's if, if I'm there, that's what I'll be asking them to do. Two-year moratorium and uh, fund, fund these social equity economic empowerment, fund them from the tax as well. So when the RMDs do get open, <laughs> they're still going to be paying, and they're going to pay forever, which I think is uh, – and it's not anything additional. It's just that that's what they would pay for any city or town. It's just directing that money to the right, you know, to, to the right fund. Sounds and good to the, me. Fu- the fund is really so crucial. I know I was saying it a little bit earlier, but – the fact, uh, just so your listeners, I, I think the listeners might know a little bit about this, but there was a state-level fund proposed. I believe you saw uh, Senator uh, uh, Chang Diaz, who's the Sonia. co-chair of the Sonia Chang Diaz. Yep, the co-chair of the uh, Cannabis Committee, along with Rep. David Rogers. She proposed a a budget amendment at the state level that would have created this fund with, I believe, $10 million to start. I might be wrong there. Yep. And unfortunately, they, the budget amendment did not pass this year. And so waiting on public financing for at the state level for um, these applicants, social uh, equity and economic empowerment, may not be feasible. And so towns like Cambridge may actually be the only way for there to be sustainable capital for these applicants. And in that way, Cambridge could really live up to its progressive reputation reputation by embracing that yearly contribution model to fund that uh, that fund we were talking about. There you go. And for people that don't 
I think a lot of our listeners get it at this point. But for people that don't get it, you can't go to a bank to get a loan to open a cannabis dispensary. You have to, if you, you know, and it's very costly. It just drags on and on because you have to rent places out before you even have a, a license. And to afford all this cost, these smaller applicants are, are in the end, end up going to borrow the money from big cannabis who basically take over and they monopolize. And that's what we're all against. So we want to see the smaller guy get an opportunity, especially social equity empowerment. So I want to thank you for discussing all that with us uh, about Cambridge on Wednesday night at 530, Cambridge City Hall. People can go and testify. They can leave, you know, leave your public comments from city councilors. You can leave written comments. You can email them as well. So definitely I would recommend that people get involved in Cambridge this week, uh, no matter where you live, and especially if you're a Cambridge resident. But this affects everyone in the state, so you, you anyone can go and speak at these uh, city hall hearings. Yes, and if you do come and speak, um, I'm going to uh, – so I go by Grant Smith uh, on Facebook. Uh, you can also reach out to Mike. But if you would like to come and speak, please feel free to reach out. Uh, I'm sure that there will be a good group of people going down there, uh, just grassroots activists in it just because they want to express their opinion. And you don't have to feel alone. Sometimes it can feel daunting to have to go to a, a, a council of elected officials and voice an opinion on a, on a hot topic. Uh, you won't be alone. We hang out before. We walk up together. We stand near each other. Uh, you won't be alone, and, and we'd love to have you. It's fun. It's a fun way uh, to meet good people. A lot of times, you know, there's a lot of different ways to meet people in the cannabis community, but unfortunately, they're not always the best people. And I, I hate to say that, but it's true. And you know, when I go to city council hearings and things like this, this is the way I find what I refer to as the best people in this community because they come out and uh, they actually are contributing by right? by speaking. You're, you're representing hundreds of people, so I can't. Uh, the best people will be there, and it's a good way to meet those people, and they're very welcoming. And so I definitely highly recommend to go to these hearings. We also want to talk about another hearing at the state, on the state level, Cannabis Control Commission. Yes, we do. They're having a public hearing this week as well. They are having two huge public Yeah, two of them. <laughs> and yeah. these are huge because these are about the draft regulations, right? Yeah, and I think uh, I may have to even defer to you here because your knowledge of this is so intimate. But, but yes, uh, they're updating the medical regulations and the recreational regulations. I'm laughing because I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> My knowledge on this? I'm like, you know, I see this stuff like 10 years ago, five years ago. But now uh, I'm like, I can't keep up with this crap, man. I leave it to the experts. <laughs> I used to be the expert, but you can't keep up with everything. But, I mean, there's some things I know about that, uh, you know, we want to see happen. And there's some good things in this. You know, for the medical patients, they are waiving uh, the annual fee. So you want to, you know, make sure that sticks. I don't think there's any reason anyone would want to take that out. But uh, there are some issues as well in it, a lot of issues. Body cams, is that still? No, they get rid of that, actually. I think they got rid of that, actually, from the draft, too. Yeah, so um, we, we definitely will dive into this a little bit if you because I really think the the state level regulations are really interesting. Some of the proposals, as you're saying, are really dangerous. They so basically what's happening is that um, 
there are two different programs in Massachusetts. Uh, one is the medical marijuana program where you have to have a card. Uh, one is the recreational program. The reason I uh, kicked over to you at first is because, Mike, the work you did on behalf of the medical patients, which although a smaller group of people than the recreational patients, was so important because every year to register with the medical marijuana program, patients like myself have to not only pay $200 to a doctor to get our recommendation for the cannabis, but then we were having to pay $50 to the state on top of it. Now, for me, because I'm uh, homebound, I rely on uh, Ubers because my vision is intact and I can't drive. So the process of doing that, getting to the doctor, paying, getting back, and then paying the $50 fee was upwards of $400 a year for me sometimes, which is half of my income. And that's me. And there are other people on a fixed income who get less per month than me. So you can imagine it, it was quite a burden. And thanks to the tireless efforts of folks like yourself, before these regulations went into effect, they actually made a unilateral decision to remove that $50 a year fee for the patients, which is huge. It is. And some patients have that fee waived in the past if they submitted all the documents for hardship. But the issue with that is that even if you qualify for that, then you've got to wait. It makes, it, it makes the, the wait for your card even longer. And that's costly. That costs money because the longer a patient waits for their card, time is ticking on that recommendation. So patients are paying even when they were getting a wage fee in a way, in a weird way, because they're losing time on their recommendation that they paid for. So having that fee waived really does help, especially we have to, the, the poorest folks that, that, that they are already were having the fee waived, but they were losing, again, I say that, they were losing time on the recommendation. There was a month or two months it took to review that stupid hardship and so they didn't have access for that time. And now it's going to be quicker for them, which I really like. And and for other folks, too, who are just maybe over the hardship poverty line, it's such a low number. If you're working class poor, like a lot of us are, like, my, you know, I consider myself, I'm doing okay now. But you know what I'm saying? You will, you'll, you're working for full time for a living. But still, the cost of living in Massachusetts, if I can save an extra 50 bucks a year, thank, thank you, board. <laughs> you know? So I'm glad that happened. Thank, thanks. Grant uh, for mentioning, you know, but uh, there's a lot of people who've been working on that, and there's other things they've changed too. But I feel like there's a lot more that they need to do. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything you want to weigh in on the on the on the CCC? Are you going to that? Are you testifying? Oh yeah, and um, just before I jump in, I want to give them credit uh, before I get into my criticisms okay. for one more thing because. You were talking a little bit about the lag time in processing the hardship yeah. application, which is absolutely true. But on top of that, there was another lag time. Even if you didn't have a hardship, sometimes right. when you're, you'd apply for your card, and I think you experienced this firsthand, I did. you'd have to wait a month. Yeah. You'd have to month. wait a month. Yeah. A month. And it, it was even longer. It was up to three months for me, and I started complaining. And then I immediately got fixed because of who I am, and the state reached out to me. And then I used it all against them, and I buried them, and I was harassing the crap out of them, and they wouldn't answer me. And finally, they did answer me, and it was this change, which is good, but it's not perfect because it's still this this change only affects patients who are getting their cards for the first time. So it helps them; it speeds up the process. But on the renewal, you're still trapped. You're still stuck in this this trap where 
Sometimes it takes 30 days to renew. Sometimes it takes four months. And we don't know why. And I think it's a lot to do with staffing. And we did report as well about uh, a labor complaint uh, filed by uh, uh, one of the SEIU, which is a labor union, against the state about this. Because it seems like they were short-staffed and they were outsourcing the work of approving these medical cannabis applications uh, to a third party, and it was actually against the union contract. So there's a lot of issues uh, within the state right now, and this is small potatoes in the political landscape. It sounds big to us, uh, sounds scandalous to us, but there are so many other scandals we're looking at uh, outside of cannabis, you know, in Massachusetts right now, from the MBTA uh, to the drunk driving, uh, the RV issue, so many ridiculous things that have happened in Massachusetts. And it's incompetence. I always leave it to Charlie Baker. Everyone says he's a good guy and he's done well in Massachusetts. I don't know. I see incompetence everywhere I look. I don't know about you, Grant. Well, my comment on Charlie Baker is thus. He thinks people will forget, but I remember his position when the big dig happened. He was a cabinet secretary in charge of kind of uh, finance. It has a weird title, his position at the time during the big dig. But he borrowed billions of dollars from the MBTA through what are called forward, uh, uh, it's a loan instrument, but he borrowed against the MBTA to the tune of $3 billion. And he did that while he was uh, in the cabinet in the early 2000s for one of the governors. And that decision, single-handedly, has put the T into a position where it's underfunded and trains are derailing. Are you really telling me? Because I I, I know that uh, the issue with the T really is that it's all the the, uh, debt that they've had to carry from the big dig. And he was the guy who put it on the MP. He was the guy? Yeah, I want to get you the exact explanation here. Unbelievable. And then rewarded him and made him governor. We're not as intelligent in Massachusetts as we pretend, it seems. And I want to give this rundown here. So just just for context, Baker was the Secretary of Administration and Finance, and he was the main architect of the big, big financing plan, right? And so that was a $5.8 billion project initially that ended up resulting in $22 billion dollars in expenses after in interest payments. And it was because of what he did, because of how it went over budget, because of how Baker set up what are called grant anticipation notes, which are basically investment v- oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just laughing. Grant anticipation oh, yeah. sounds so shady. Go ahead, grant anticipation oh, notes. Yeah, so he, he borrowed against the MBTA. Which is which <laughs> Yeah. This this forward funding, it split the MBTA from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and the goal was to self-fund the MBTA and balance the budget of the Massachusetts Transportation Department. However, to balance the budget, they just took $3.2 billion of debt that Baker had used to pay for the big dig and saddled the MBTA with it. And because the MBTA couldn't pay back that $3.2 billion, it just continued to grow because of the interest. And so it literally is directly the fault of Charlie Baker and those grant anticipation notes from his time as Secretary of Administration and Finance that the T is in the state it's in today. What a financial genius. 
So hey, we're bringing back to the Cambridge, uh, not yeah. Cambridge, the uh, Cannabis Control Commission hearing this weekend about this week about the draft regulation. There's two different hearings. Correct. So the first, and uh, thank you for getting me back on track. I am a little passionate about uh, Governor Baker and his history. Uh, so the first uh, one is going to be on August the 14th. Now that's going to be in Western Massachusetts. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me. I want to get this exactly right here. The August 14th hearing, which is going to be Wednesday, is at 10 a.m., and it's actually in downtown Boston. So it's the same day as the Cambridge uh, Ordinance hearing, but earlier in the day. So the Cannabis Control Commission is at 10 a.m., and it's at 50 Milk Street in Boston on the 8th floor. And then on Thursday of this week, which is the 15th, they're holding a second listening session at the Western New England School of Law in the Mort Court in the Moot Courtroom at 10 a.m. Those are the date and times of the two uh, comment sessions. And what are you going to be commenting? What are you going to be asking them for? So, uh, as you were saying a bit earlier, uh, we got to it in a bit of a roundabout way, but there are actually some really uh, terrible proposals that have been made. The one that I'm uh, most concerned with, uh, there are two actually. The first is a little bit shorter. I'll get it out of the way. So, uh, there is something called uh, a hardship grow for medical patients. Yes. And what, what this means is that, uh, like you were talking about earlier, if you have a hardship, not only will the State uh, Cannabis Commission waive that fee, although now they waive it for everyone, they also will allow you to grow your own cannabis in amounts that are larger than what the normal limit on a uh, recreational grow would be. And up until this point, uh, the medical program until last year was administered by the Department of Public Health, the DPH. And under that program, so long as hardship patients applied for their ability to do their hardship grow and uh, maintain their registration, they were allowed to have their hardship grow. Uh, they, they were simply allowed to have it. The proposal that the Cannabis Control Commission is thinking of adopting this time around which people will be able to comment on on Wednesday and Thursday, would, first of all, impose on a $100 fee on those hardship patients just to apply to be able to grow their own medical marijuana. And then it would mandate that they waive their Fourth Amendment rights and subject their medical grows in the context of their medical and financial hardships to on-the-spot inspections by a litany of different actors from law enforcement to the Cannabis Control Commission, and that the uh, way in which those inspections would occur would basically be on par with compliance requirements for regular dispensaries. So they're proposing that hardship medical patients should be forced to subject themselves to nearly on-the-spot inspections simply because they don't have the ability to go and purchase their medical cannabis from a caregiver or a dispensary. Right. And there's other things that they're asking in there too, which is, uh, you know, if they want, if they want this type of um, oversight, they should provide some financing for it, <laughs> some money for it, because they're basically telling these hardship patients that you can grow, you can spend all the money you want on it, 
but you can't make any money on it. You can't sell it. Um, you can't charge for your services, but you have to comply with all this oversight that requires money. And so, you know, to the hardship patients, this is, I think it's really outrageous myself. If they want to allow that change to the goddamn law and allow them to sell the product so that they can actually cover what you're asking them to do. Yep. And, um, that's on the medical end. And then on the recreational end, um, one of the things that I'm going to be talking about is so something that's been long coming in uh, the Commonwealth uh, is uh, regulated uh, delivery of recreational cannabis. Currently, only uh, caregivers and medical dispensaries can deliver. However, under the proposed recreational regulations, they are thinking they are proposing rolling out a, a, a form of cannabis delivery for recreational purposes. Now, this should have been simple, in my opinion. But instead, what they've proposed is perhaps the most ridiculous policy that I've ever come across in my time examining the annals of public discourse in this American republic. I'm Which not sure it's say, so silly. <laughs> say it again? You know, I don't think it's that silly. Well, here's the proposal. It makes a lot of perhaps, sense if you're, if you're an existing dispensary. Yeah. And and perhaps that uh, that's the insight. And yeah, so the existing the proposal that the Cannabis Control Commission is going with now for delivery would be thus: delivery companies could open separate; they could be their own existing companies. But to deliver, they would have to go to one of three. They could register with up to three different existing recreational dispensaries, brick and mortar. They could go pick up product at retail price and then deliver it to a customer. And on top of that, the customer has to register physically in the recreational dispensary before they're allowed to receive the delivery from the third-party delivery service. I thought they waived that part of it. They didn't? No, they they were going to require that for medical patients as well. And they waive that. So they're doing it on the rec side. That's that's yeah. that's just ridiculousness. That this is a, a recipe for failure. They're basically saying, you know, and, the, and these are social. Again, the folks that they're proposing this for are social equity. These are folks that they're basically saddling them with a business that can't su- succeed. No one's going to succeed with that model. We we know it. No one, no one is going to. It's not going to work. It's basically going to put them out of business before they even get started. It's a joke. Yeah, so that we I didn't mean to jump over that, but I, I should be clear. The best part about these delivery licenses was supposed to be that, and this was a, the, a project that, and I want to give her a shout-out, Commissioner Shaleen Title worked on vehemently. She was in the weeds on the proposal from the very beginning and, and helped with this priority period. So this is separate from Cambridge now. We're talking on the state level. She proposed, along with a few others, that the delivery licenses contain a two-year exclusivity period for only social uh, equity and economic empowerment applicants. However, exactly as you say, what has come out of this proposal is a format for delivery which would make these companies glorified couriers with profit margins that are minuscule compared to the actual person selling 
the cannabis at retail and then having them deliver them for deliver the cannabis and charge a little uh, upsell on it. Yeah, it's not even equity. Also, it is this glorified Uber, glorified taxi. I mean, it's like it's a the dispensaries. The dispensaries set up. The dispensaries are the ones who want this. I mean, that is. If that's not equity. When the dispensary is your boss, basically. I mean, they determine the price. They determine everything. You have no chance to shop around. That's crazy. And that's the thing. The the there is another proposal that's out there, and the right. cannabis advisory board, which is a uh, uh, an, an appointed board that um, with uh, I believe twenty five members or so, maybe a little less, that gives advisory positions uh, to the cannabis control commission. That board unanimously, with only a single abstention, endorsed a, another format for delivery, which is much more reasonable, called standalone delivery licenses. And th- that format for delivery would allow delivery companies to have a warehouse, to purchase wholesale from uh, existing uh, manufacturers and cultivators, in particular what are called micro-businesses. Currently, those micro-businesses can only sell to, uh, those cultivators and manufacturers can only sell directly to the existing dispensaries. And so you can see why these dispensaries, the existing rec dispensaries, hate the idea of a standalone delivery license because it would introduce competition to the market. That's right. A better product, better pricing. And basically what, what, what we're, you know, saying here is that the RMDs are basically making sure that they're going to be the middleman on every transaction that takes place in Massachusetts, whether it's coming from a micro-grow or whether it's a delivery service, that they all go through the RMD. And that's just un-American. You know, we should, we should have the option that these other, you know, growers and cultivators and micro-grows are licensed. Why can't they sell? This is just... That's why there was a year, you know, near unanimous vote from the other uh, group that does more closely represent the citizens and does have more members. It's funny how uh, the Cannabis Control Commission, you know, four out of five of them have no experience with cannabis until they were put on this board. Hmm. You know, um, actually, maybe one of them you could say, you know, that worked at the DPH. Uh, besides Shalene, you know, Shalene obviously has experience, but you know. Three out of five of them, they didn't know anything about cannabis before they were put on this board. And the fourth one, you know, how much does she really know, you know? And, and Shaleen is the only one that has any sense on any of this stuff. And she's our champion. And they always, a lot of times on this, they vote against us, against her and vote against their own, uh, what, what do you call that, the cab? They vote against their own, you know, board. Well, so, yeah, yeah, it's it's just it's outrageous, and people need to call this out because this is this is like fixing, it's like you know, it's creating monopoly, and there's no reason for it. This, what is their explanation for choosing this kind of model? Like, what what is their excuse? I I, I gotta hear this just a lot of bullshit. What is it? Well, it? yeah, sure, yeah, sure. So I I can tell you one of the arguments that was made, uh, which was that um, so yes, you're correct. Out of the five commissioners. Four of them actually voted no on question four in 2016. So four of them opposed the creation of their own position. Only Commissioner Title voted in favor of recreational cannabis in 2016, from what I understand. However, 
what they so going back to delivery, this was the logic put forward by one of the commissioners. I believe it was Commissioner McBride. It might have been Commissioner Flanagan. They said, well, forcing standalone delivery businesses to acquire a warehouse would be too high of a barrier to entry. So we, if we allow them to sell stock from existing retailers, that'll give them the chance to earn profit without having to invest a lot into their business, without realizing that by taking away the opportunity to profit, the entire reason for having the business is out the window. That's right. Why not give them the option to vote, to, to decide for themselves? Well, that would hurt profits for the existing dispensaries. Oh, so maybe that's really it. So basically they threw up a bunch of smoke screen. They're actually protecting us. They're actually protecting the small guy. Hmm. But the small guy isn't happy. So how much are you really protecting them? Why don't you actually talk to the people you claim to represent? Isn't that uh, rule 101 for representing communities? <laughs> you, you, it's unbelievable. So uh, definitely people should go and uh, say, you know what, I 100% I agree on this grant. People should go and ask for standalone delivery. They should, they should say this is outrageous and there should be more options for delivery services. Yep, I, I can't thank you enough, Mike. Uh, there's a lot of issues that people can get passionate about in terms of CCC. If you want to learn more about some of them, as I said earlier, feel free to reach out to Grant Smith on Facebook. There are some excellent Facebook groups, uh, Mass Citizens for Real Cannabis Rights, Patients Over Profit, Mike, which is one that uh, I see you in all the time. And uh, those resources, you'll actually see people talking about all of the different issues in front of the CCC for the coming comments uh, periods, uh, comment sessions this week on Wednesday and Thursday. And so if you have any interest at all in learning some of the finer details or learning more about standalone delivery or the situation in Cambridge, you anyone, feel free to reach out anytime. I'm always happy to chat. Thank you so much, Grant. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you for having me, Mike. And it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And like I said in the beginning, uh, I'm really grateful not only for all that you do for the community, but for all that you've done for me as a friend and a mentor, and I just wanted to leave you with that. Oh, thank you, Grant. Right back at you 100%, buddy. Love you. Love you, too. See you later, Mike. Talk to you soon. Bye. Every day, their life's here to help you live a higher quality of life. The massive product selection at their Wareham dispensary features superior quality flour, vapes, edibles, and more, all derived from locally sourced growers. Experience unparalleled customer service from experts whose knowledge will help you become smarter about your options. Located 10 minutes from the Bourne Bridge, make Verilife Wareham your last stop on the way to the Cape. Reserve an order through Leafly and you'll be on your way in no time. Open seven days a week from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. The good vibes start at Verilife.